This is The Guardian. Today, one man's campaign for a dignified death. Could you start off by introducing yourself for me? I'm David, David Mins. I'm 74 years old and I live in Mildenhall, Suffolk. So to give people a bit of a sense of where we are, we're sitting in a shed at the end of your garden, but it's not your average shed. No, it's not your average shed. It's an upmarket man cave and it's a summer house, but it's my haven. If I didn't have my shed, I would be in the house 24-7. So I'm actually looking at the garden, the birds, and it's wonderful. It is an escape for me. David's invited me round because he wants to talk about his life and how it might end. He really has lived. He's had children whom he adores lived in Portugal for years, flown on Concorde, driven across Australia, and run his own hairdressing business. He can't do any of that anymore. A few years ago, doctors diagnosed him with multiple myeloma and amyloidosis, which basically means that excess proteins are building up in his body, in his organs and tissues, and shutting them down. David's sitting with his legs resting up high on a padded stool, trying to keep his circulation going. That's one of the big problems of this condition. The blood can't flow properly around his body anymore. He says his hands and feet are cold all the time. And you've got all sorts of fascinating things in here. I've seen you've got quite a collection of hats propped up around the room, big collection of walking sticks, and then this amazing sound system with a, with a turntable and a radio and speakers. I just buy memorabilia and stuff which interests me and I've got vinyl now, so I might as well listen to some of the old music that I that um, I grew up with. What kinds of things have you got back into? Joshua Tree, which is not old, but it's got wonderful memories with the children. We had it on a tape and we just played it over and over and over again on a trip to Denmark. I just love being on the auction sites and buying stuff, which is a bit ironic, really, under the circumstances. David's had a long course of chemotherapy, but in the summer he decided to stop treatment. In the time that remains, he wants to fight, because he believes that people like him, who are terminally ill with less than six months to live, those who are mentally fit should be able to take a pill to end their lives if they choose to. It's a contentious subject that's been fought over for years in court and in Parliament. There's a bill going through the House of Lords right now about it. But so far, the law has remained that in the UK, assisted dying is illegal. From The Guardian, I'm Hannah Moore. Today in Focus, Is it time to change the law on assisted dying?
I want to understand, first of all, a bit about your life, because as I understand it, you've had quite an adventurous life. I was a country boy until I had bowel cancer in 1999. And then 18 months later, my wife died suddenly. But in the 18 months, we had decided that we wanted to start to live. We decided we were going to sell up everything, move to Portugal, have a little home. But when she died, um, everything just changed and I wanted just to get away. Um, And I decided that I was going to go and live in Portugal. I have a wonderful wife now. We were in Portugal for 15 years and um, when when I turned 65, I decided that, um, or we decided, we were going to go to Australia. So we did the West Coast from Perth to Darwin in a camper van, um, which was just incredible. It's the most wonderful place, and we had the most wonderful experiences. So many things have happened in my life, and most of them good, but there's been an awful lot of bad things. But I don't dwell on the bad things. And under the circumstances which I'm living under, I reflect on the on the, the wonderful places I've been, the things I've done. Um, I, there's there's not much. I have no regrets about my life. David, help me understand your condition. Um, I haven't been well for some time. I wasn't able to do the things I could do before, like we'd walk the dog for two and a half hours and it got to the stage where half an hour and I was shattered. They found I had excess protein in my urine and diagnosed me with multiple myeloma and amyloidosis, which is a build-up of protein in the blood, which clogs the blood up, which clogs the all your... Um, all main organs up and that it was incurable amyloidosis is is normally fatal after six months they gave me two years to six months um, so every six months after that was a, a bonus but um, now I've gone over two years and it's probably because I was so fit to begin with but Unfortunately, the circumstances now is that uh, my life could end any minute. How does it affect what you're able to do day to day? I can do nothing. Um, wheel, I'm wheelchair bound. I don't know what I do without Susan now. Um, she is, say, my rock. Um, she is everything. I can't do anything without her help. She's my driver, my gardener, my cook, my house cleaner, my carer. And I'm just so lucky. How does it feel to be in your body at the moment? Well, my body's getting smaller. I'm down to 10 stone now. and But this weight has just has come off in the last probably six weeks. I feel cold all of the time. I mean, internally cold, and nothing makes me warm. I'm getting more pain than I had, 
So yeah, the things that things are getting to the stage where I realise that um, it's going to get difficult. But it's not just difficult for me, it's difficult for Sue, my wife, and it's difficult for my family because they have to watch me um, deteriorate. And you're campaigning for people to have the legal right um, to a, an assisted death. Tell me, how did you come to that decision? Well, eight years ago when my daughter Katie was 39, was diagnosed with a sarcoma in her cheek, it was uh, removed, but as a result, she had she lost half the side of her face and she took an awful lot of abuse from unfortunate people who didn't realise or understand what was happening to her. And she was diagnosed five years. Well, five years in was when I got diagnosed. So we had two years together as um, terminally ill. And we had black humour to cope with it. And it was always going to be considered a, a race of um, who was going to go first. And she was determined that she was going to go first because she wanted to... She couldn't wait to get to see her mum again and then tell her what I'd been up to. But she died the most horrific death. And it wasn't a Hollywood death. She didn't just disappear into the night like Ingrid Bergman. Um, And so... I can't talk about her, right? And so... How how old was Katie when she went? She was 46 when she died. And um, in the time that I would sit with her, I had contemplated taking her life. And it was at the thought of that horrified me. And I thought, what sort of society do we live in where we allow people to suffer like this? And as a father, to think what I was going to do to her. And so, after when the funeral and everything, I thought, I really need to do something because I feel like I'm in a unique position that I have witnessed suffering from a loved one. I have lost a brother through suicide, and I'm terminally ill. So how many people can say they've got the experience of all three? I know what the damage is to the family on all three situations. At the time, Baron Meacher had just introduced the bill into the Lords. Some 52% of the population report that they've witnessed a loved one suffering unbearably at the end of their life. Assisted dying will reduce those fears of dying so that we can live better. Then, when we're given a terminal diagnosis, the legal right to an assisted death will give us and our families great comfort and reassurance, knowing that we will have a choice and some control and over I've how long we can And I watched the debate, and I thought, I have to get involved in this. I have to get my story across. <coughs> because every time 
that somebody spoke in favour of the bill. They were all speaking from a point of experience. They had all lost somebody. And I don't want anybody to have to go through what I went through and my family went through with, with Katie. I don't want them to have to go through it with me. So how exactly would you like the law to change? Um, well, as the bill says, I would like the option of an assisted death. And um, the bill, as it's set out now, it would make being terminally ill and knowing that if your suffering gets to the stage where it's intolerable, that you have this option to end your life in a dignified manner. So rather than have palliative care and be sedated, we decide that it's time to die with our families around us. And how exactly would that work? Is it a case of taking medicine? I think it's um, tablet form. But there again, it has you have to be physically capable of taking it yourself. I wouldn't want the, the drug to be administered to me by somebody, by a member of the family, because they have to live with that, because there's a feeling oh, later on that um, I killed my father or I killed my um, husband. I want to be physically capable to take the medicine myself. I don't want to have it administered by a third party. I want to be there. Some people listening to the way that you speak, you know, they, they might have family members who are, who are in a similar situation to you and feel very, very upset by the idea of them going through with assisted dying. Do, do, you, do you understand that? Oh, of course. I, I, I'm, I don't speak for all terminally ill people. I'm speaking um, for me and about my experiences. It's an option you can take, you know, whether you take it or not is entirely up to you, whether it's on, you know, whether it's on religious grounds or, um, or what. But the, you, if, if you don't, you don't have to take this, this route. But I would like to think that what I have to say, if it can influence a campaign, and if MPs vote in favour, then and let's get it available. Not it's not going to be compulsory. Nobody is forced into these things. Now, some people are deeply concerned about the idea of the law changing. One of the arguments that's made is that if you allow assisted dying, then vulnerable people will be taken advantage of, perhaps disabled people will be taken advantage of, people might be encouraged to end their lives before it's their time. How do you feel about that? Um, as the bill's written, if you're not terminally ill, it's not applicable. If you're not mentally capable, it's not applicable. If you're disabled and you're not able to administer it to yourself, you wouldn't be included. And I don't know where um, the argument is with regards to disabled people and the fear that they might be dragged into it. Two, 
independent doctors have to determine that you will die within six months. This law only applies to to mentally capable patients who are terminally diagnosed. If you're not any of those, this law doesn't apply to you. What would be a good death for you? Um, well, I suppose the Hollywood death, but that's, you know, it just doesn't happen. Um, I would just like to sit in here in, in my shed. I can't drink alcohol. I have no, you know, I have no taste buds, but I'd love the idea of having a beer, regardless of what it tastes like. I would have my family with me and I would just play my favourite music and then just drift off and go and be able to say goodbye to everybody in a dignified way. Nicola Davis, you're a science correspondent for The Guardian. You've written about assisted dying before. David has laid out to me a really impassioned explanation of why he feels the option of assisted dying should be available. But the concept of that, to some people, is almost unthinkable. You know, in our society, we try to preserve life. That's that's what medical advances are about. Can you explain for me what are the main arguments that people have against legalising assisted dying? I think the concerns here are not about sort of making people suffer. And I think that's sort of a, an important thing to say. But you've got a range of things. So you've got people who believe that it would overturn the Hippocratic Oath. So you know, doctors, they're supposed to do no harm. Then there are other concerns as well. So, for example, some disability campaigners are concerned that it could create a pressure for some people to end their lives, so that they're not a burden on other people. And there could be sort of emotional blackmail going on there. There's also concerns about you know, slippery slope arguments. So well, we start here, but you know, where do we end? What do people mean by that? We know that you might start with a bill that, that only allows assisted dying for terminally ill people with less than six months to live with two doctors signing it off and it all being very sort of very limited but then that could progress to people who perhaps don't have terminal conditions other people feel that you know we should be doing better at investing in palliative care and in easing people's final journey as it were rather than just cutting it short people will have heard different terminology being used around this topic euthanasia assisted suicide assisted dying What's the difference between them? So if we think about the term euthanasia, which is something people might be more familiar with as a term, that sort of active steps taken to end someone's end someone's life. And, and the actual act of ending that life is undertaken by someone other than the person sort of involved. So, for example, a doctor. Then you have assisted suicide, which is sort of, helping somebody else to take their own life. So the person themselves takes their own life, but they do so with the help of somebody else. Now, assisted dying can be used to mean both euthanasia and assisted suicide. 
What is the current legal situation in the UK regarding assisted dying? As with so many aspects of of this topic, it is a little bit complex. So in England, Wales and Northern Ireland, euthanasia and assisted suicide are illegal. So euthanasia can lead to a murder charge and assisted suicide could result in a sentence of up to 14 years in prison. In Scotland, euthanasia is also illegal, uh, but there's a slight nuance around assisted suicide in that there isn't a law against it, but that doesn't mean it's legal. Now, that's not to say that in the UK, assisted dying never happens. There was a study published in 2009 that suggested, I think it was responses from around 3,700 medical professionals that suggested around 0.2 deaths involve voluntary euthanasia. So... In terms of the situation at the moment, if somebody is terminally ill, it's legal for them to refuse life-prolonging treatment, isn't it? Yes, that's right. So in the UK, patients have the right to refuse treatment, even if that could mean that their life is shorter. And uh, medical care can be withdrawn by doctors in certain cases. So, for example, if a patient is in a vegetative state, they're not going to recover, then that can be withdrawn. So there there are various palliative care pathways as well. I mean, you know, so so if somebody at the moment does have an unbearable physical illness here, like in just speaking practically, because it's not legal for them to go ahead with assisted dying, what are people finding themselves having to do? Well, obviously, it sort of depends on individual situations. You know, there are palliative care pathways, but of course, some people do feel compelled to actually take another course. They might, for example, go to Switzerland, to Dignitas. That is allowed in Swiss law. People can travel and go to places like that. But of course, you know, it's not cheap. It's not necessarily an easy journey, particularly, you know, somebody's terminally ill. That's you know very, often very difficult circumstances to be travelling in. And there is still that, that concern that people who accompany somebody could still potentially face the risk of prosecution when they return to the UK. And, you know, there have been cases where people have been investigated by the police for doing that. So it's, it's not a straightforward situation for anyone in that position. The concept of assisted dying, as I've said, that David is calling for is within strict parameters. And in 2015, a bill was brought before Parliament proposing that assisted dying be legalised in this country within those parameters. But MPs voted overwhelmingly not to legalise it. Why? Yes, so that was rejected in the House of Commons, as you say, in 2015, and MPs voted 330 to 118 against changing the law. Uh, And again, as you say, it was was a a law similar to that, which is on the table now, which proposed terminally ill, mentally competent adults with less than six months to live to have an assisted death after being approved by two doctors. In the Commons, it was a very emotional and uh, sort of complex debate. I've cared for my husband the last five years and I saw when life changed to being a burden. There was a mix of views across parties uh, and I think that this sort of idea of setting the precedent is something which clearly concerns some, some people. In the countries where this is legal, what problems have there been? 
to the best of my knowledge, countries which have brought in assisted dying haven't rescinded the law. But nonetheless, you know, there have been cases uh, which have caused some concern. So in 2020, for example, in the Netherlands, a case went to the, the Supreme Court regarding euthanasia because a doctor in a, in a Dutch nursing home performed euthanasia on a patient with severe dementia. And eventually he was acquitted of murder charges, but nonetheless, it went all the way to the Supreme Court. And there's been a recent case in Belgium where a woman who'd been suffering from chronic depression for 40 years requested euthanasia to be performed on her, which was granted by a doctor under the Euthanasia Act. Her son then complained to the European Court of Human Rights, but the judges ruled in favour of Belgium on three out of four counts. What the medical community had to say about this, after all, they would be the people who'd be having to make these decisions and prescribe the medication to end a person's life. Now, it is interesting because there has been a shift in recent years. So the British Medical Association, it shifted to a neutral position. But they do say that doctors must have legally protected rights to object to participating on the basis of their conscience, you know, should there be a change in law in the UK. Nicola, the bill that David saw being introduced on TV, Baroness Meacher's bill on assisted dying, the one that really started him campaigning. That's going through the House of Lords at the moment. How likely is it, do you think, that the law is going to change in this country? Well, it's it's difficult to say full stop. You know, the rejection last time in Westminster was quite decisive. Whether people's views and opinions and experiences and everything has led to a shift in opinion, I think it's very, very hard to say. So... I think it will be a case of, of, of wait and see, really. I do. Coming up, what being terminally ill has taught David? Tell me where your campaign has got you to. Um, Well, obviously, I want to get as much done because I don't know how long I've got to do it in. I've just met some incredible people. I mean, Matt Hancock, who came to see me. He's your local MP? He is my local MP. And I had mixed feelings, but I just felt that I wanted, you know, if I can talk to somebody... Um, then Matt Hancock would be the most obvious person. And he came, he came for 20 minutes and he stayed over an hour. And he was brilliant and he has been brilliant. But I would love the opportunity to talk to to the Prime Minister and to the Deputy Prime Minister. They're both in constituencies which actually take them almost past my front door. So I would love the opportunity to discuss it with them. I don't want people to feel sorry for me. I, you know, I want them to be empathetic. And I want, I want you, if you're, in a, if, you're, if you're listening to this and you're in a position to be able to write to your MP, if you disagree with what I say, I'm fine. I'm fine with that. But if you, if you agree that um, this bill should come into place, then 
contact your MP and let them know how you feel. If you had that legal option, do you think you would go ahead with it? Um, possibly not. I would only do it if, if my situation got where I couldn't tolerate the pain or the situation. I have no self-pity. I don't feel sorry for myself. But I just feel sorry sometimes for the people around me that have to watch me gradually go downhill. And I don't know at what stage I'll, I'll get to before, you know, if, if things go on, that I will find it intolerable that I don't want to go on anymore. You're very pragmatic about it. And what we're having is an extraordinary conversation, really. In wider society, it's very scary for people to think about death and dying, isn't it? At, at what point did you become at peace with it, if you'd say, if I'm interpreting it correctly and, and you are at peace with it? Um, initially, obviously, it was a bit of a shock when I was first told. But, you know, I have been here. I've been there before. I mean, in 1999, when I had bowel cancer, I was told it's not a case of if it comes back, it's a case of when it comes back. So I've had this sword of Damocles hanging over me um, for over 20 years. But I've had a wonderful life. I feel like I'm almost privileged. I'm privileged to be in the position that I'm in. I have witnessed humanity that I never thought was a, was there. This is why I'm doing what I'm doing, because I just want to shout out to everybody, look, you know, if we can change the laws so that terminally ill people can have a dignified accent and that dying doesn't have to be traumatic. You don't have to die in a in a terrible way. Who are you doing this campaign for? Who are you thinking of when you're saying that? everybody else that's coming along after me. All the people that haven't yet been diagnosed. All the families that have to go through what we went through with my daughter and what every terminal family is going to have to go through. And that gives a purpose as I said, it's my reason. It's the reason why I get up, and I think it. What puts I haven't. I don't think about dying. I think about helping people who aren't yet in the situation that I'm in, but will be, who don't have the option. David, thank you so much. Um, I can only say it's been a real pleasure and you've been wonderful. Thank you. Thank you to David Minns and to Sue, his wife, for welcoming me into their home so warmly. Thank you also to Nicola Davis, whose writing you can find at theguardian.com and whose podcast, Science Weekly, you can listen to wherever you found this one. If you've been affected by what you've heard today, please know that help is available. 
You can contact Cruise, which is the UK's biggest bereavement charity, and they offer free counselling. Their number is 0808 808 1677. Samaritans are also available to talk whatever you're going through. You can call them on 116-123 or email joe, that's J-O, at samaritans.org. Today's episode was produced by Tom Glasser and Ruth Abrahams and sound designed by Axel Kukutier. The executive producer was Huma Herlili. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.